You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It is Thursday, August the 25th. Now, this isn't something you've heard me say an awful lot of late. It is grey and raining here in TW11. Not just raining, bucketing down as it has been all morning to the point that Epsom Downs Racecourse, which is 11, 12 miles away, is now calling it's going soft for Bank Holiday Monday's meeting. You haven't heard that for a while either. I think it'll have plenty of time to dry out. It's going to be a fairly pleasant weekend all round. So the fixture list has been published for 2023. Uh, There's been an increase to the minimum race values but there's broadly speaking a similar amount of fixtures to 2022 and that will be the major sticking point in the sport. Should we stay the same? Should we reduce fixtures in a bid to increase the competitiveness of the sport? Richard Wayman is the Chief Operating Officer of the British Horse Racing Authority and joins me now. Richard, why have we got the same amount of fixtures next year as we have this, broadly speaking? The first thing to say about the fixture list process is of course that it is this tripartite decision-making area. So it's a it's an area where the 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 race courses the participants and indeed the BHA work on something together to try and uh, uh, agree a package for the, the following year's fixture list and obviously as part of that we look to make progress in a number of different areas one of those areas of course one of the things that we consider is the uh, the competitiveness of our racing and obviously this year we've fallen a long way short of the the competitive and compelling racing that we obviously seek to seek to deliver. I think the important thing to say on this, though, is that, that this is a very complex issue because on the one hand, the sports finances are linked to the volume of, of fixtures that we put on. And so, for example, the levy, the media rights income that ultimately feeds prize money, uh, fuels prize money, that is driven to some extent by the volume. On the other hand, of course, the more volume that you put on impacts field sizes and the competitiveness issue. So when you get those tripartite parties around the table and uh, and they're discussing this complex relationship, there are inevitably views, different views around what is the right balance? What is the sweet spot for British racing? And and as a result of the decision taken earlier in the year, ultimately it was agreed that this year for 2023, we would leave fixture and race volume as is, whilst the sport undertook a more strategic review of its future fixture list and what is the right process, the right fixture list to support the future of our sport. Right. Is there a timeline for that strategic review? Because I think where there's a level of impatience is that people keep uh, recognizing that something needs to be done in the corridors of power. But th- those of us watching on from the sidelines are thinking, well, when's it going to happen and when are we going to get an announcement from the top that we 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 are going to we are going to have a, a a bold strategy to go forward with whether it's peter savills or anybody else's have we got a timeline for that the the sort of approach was announced back in the beginning of june and work has been ongoing since then in preparation for a, a two-day meeting which has also been um, talked about publicly in the middle of september and that will effectively bring all of the industry's leaders into the room to, to really commence work on 
the future shape of our fixture list and indeed other aspects of, of the industry strategy. I think the reality is that, you know, developing an industry strategy will not happen in two days uh, in, in the middle of September. And realistically, I think we're very much aiming towards uh, changes that could be implemented for the 2024 fixture list, um, which would basically mean that over the sort of following six, seven months, uh, decisions on how we want our sport to look in the future, what sort of fixture list will grow the appeal uh, of British racing to our, our various customers. It will give us that period of time to, to develop the strategy um, and make sure it's in place so that when we put the 2024 fixture list together, which really begin, work begins on that in sort of March, April next year, there is a clear and agreed vision for uh, for where we want to be uh, in in you know in the short to medium term. Yesterday on this podcast, uh, Rafe Beckett, uh, the trainer and and key figure in in the National Trainers Federation, called the Racecourse Association an immovable object when it comes to progress. Is he right? The uh, obviously there have been some differences and well publicised differences between different different stakeholder groups. I think. There is recognition across the sport that British racing needs to change. We need uh, a, a new fixture list that will basically allow the sport to thrive. We need to understand what are our customers, whether they're betters, whether they're race goers, whether they're just stay at home fans, um, will you know get involved and, and continue to, to, to be interested in, in, in British racing. And, and that will require change. And, and I believe that all parties within the sport recognise that. Um, the challenge will be uh, agreeing that vision. And that's really going to be the, the, the $64,000 question, really, for racing, it seems to me, in, in the weeks and, and, and months ahead, is whether we as a sport can agree that vision. Because once we have, once we have a lot of the sort of issues that you hear people arguing about, will actually fall out of that we're all we're all aiming for the same place and that will obviously impact volume that will impact the shape of the fixture list and a number of other things but until you've got that agreed um, point that we're all aiming for then these sorts of, of of discussions and frustrations will obviously continue see the interesting thing for me is that david armstrong himself has talked about the the ability to be agile the ability to change fixtures as you go along work on the hoof try and be a bit more sensible try and be a bit more intuitive yeah, that's all very well. But Julie Harrington on the 8th of June said we need a, a coherent strategy for the fixtures. Tweaking them it makes no sense. And that was in response to the BHA voting against its own proposal to cut 300 races off the off the fixture list. Now we've got a situation where at least for the next 18 months, at the very least, we've got this you know intuitive tweak here, nip and tuck there, piecemeal solution to go forward. Does that not seem quite contradictory to you? Well, I think you know, there there obviously can be more agility in, in, in everything that we do, whether it's putting on races, whether it's uh, replacing fixtures. And I think we're, we are, 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 pretty, uh, are pretty agile in many ways uh, at dealing with that. But I come back to the, to the main point, and I think the point Julie made in back in June was that whether we stage 10,200 races next year or 10,500 races next year, yes, that will have a small impact. That would have had an impact on, on competitiveness. But that's not that's not the burning issue here. The burning issue here is that there is not a united uh, view on where British racing wants, wants to get to and the fixture list that will indeed help it get there. This is a, a really, I think, a, 
an incredibly important time for our sport. You know, every industry is is, is um, facing you know significant challenges at the moment. British racing is no different to that. So really, now the sport can can go one of two ways. It can continue down the path that we are on. Everybody doing their own thing, having a dust up every year over a few over fifty fixtures or or something else. Or whether we have a united approach where we say this is what we believe will best serve our sport in in the years to come. And that, that will involve making progress in these areas, those areas. It will involve a picture list that looks like this. And then from that, the strategy and the plan can, can flow through so that we know what we're aiming at. But until we have that plan, you know, we will continue with this with this challenging stakeholder environment that we're in at the moment. And and hence the reason why Julie wanted to give that strategy yeah. every chance in September and in the months ahead of happening by not making any uh, sort of short term decisions that may have undermined its 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 prospects of success. But th- this must frustrate you as well. Even Bill Farnsworth who is a pretty commercially minded man and has run Musselburgh for over two decades, says, I wish we could let the BHA do their job without having their hands tied behind their back and get on with it. They don't seem to be able to do anything because either the racecourses don't agree or the trainers don't. It's complete inertia and it's crippling the sport. We've got to trust the BHA to put on a race programme to meet the demands of the horse population and put on races that are appealing to racegoers, we seem to be like rabbits in the headlights, just standing there, not doing anything. So, who, who, who is blocking you? Where is, where is the blockade, Richard? If, if one of the, if one of the, the chief executives of one of the the most uh, successful, uh, medium sized independents in the country, uh, albeit now part of a slightly bigger conglomerate, uh, and uh, and the president of the NTF are both effectively saying the same thing, who's blocking this? Who's standing in your way? I don't think any single individual is blocking anything. I would describe the current situation, Nick, and I, 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 I would use this. I've used this phrase before. It is a. It is a bit like a, a multi-party coalition government, and making progress and indeed significant change in a multi-party coalition government is very difficult. And until we can organise ourselves in a more structured and agreeable way, uh, the. the it's no single individual that causing is causing those problems. It is fundamentally the system itself that you have all of these different voices um, looking, you know, to try and do the best thing for, for, in their view for, for, for whatever group it is they're representing or for whatever organisation they work for. And in the middle of all of that is the BHA trying to lead and to bring all of those parties along together. And it is frustrating and it is challenging and it is why, you know, things can take uh, take uh, a long time to change and to deliver within the sport. But that is the system that we currently have. What we are trying to do at the moment is is to get off that hamster wheel, to take a step back and to say, look, we want to do this differently. And, and the starting point of doing it differently is having a united position on what we're mm-hmm. aiming for. And if and, 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 and it isn't if if the sport can agree that then I think that will serve us incredibly well for future fixture lists and indeed beyond the fixture list into other areas of the sport. And that's really the challenge for the sport. Can we can we all unite around a clear vision for where we want to get the where we want British racing to be in the years ahead? But Richard, I've known you a long time. You're not simply racing's senior civil servant. You are somebody who is absolutely steeped in the sport and, and have yeah understood it in all its granular 
um, and, and sometimes extremely complex detail, in your opinion, in Richard Wayman, Chief Operating Officer of the British Horse Racing Authority's opinion, is fewer fixtures the long-term answer to the sport's prosperity? Yes or no? In, in my opinion, there are times of the year when the current fixture list stretches the horse population beyond where it ought to be. We do it for reasons, but it does. And then when circumstances conspire against us, as they have done over the last few months, it leaves us in a in a difficult position with a product that doesn't appeal to racing. So, yes, Nick, I do believe that longer term part of the solution, um, part of that longer term vision for British racing will be a pruned um, fixture list. But that's but that is only part of the solution. Just taking out a few fixtures or some races here, there and everywhere is 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 only part, I believe, of a much bigger issue, which is how do we want our sport to look? That's that's the real exam question, rather than whether we stage 10,500 races next year or 10,200. I do believe we stage too many races, particularly in the summer. But I think I think the answer is a much bigger one than just tackling volume. All right, then then you've asked your own question that I will I will, I will underline. How do you want the sport to look? Do you want it to look a bit like Peter Saville wants it to look, uh, premierized? Well, how I want the sport to look is 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 in a way that will ultimately appeal to the sport's customers and investors. So it's not really what I want. It's well, what does what 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 do our customers want? What insight do we have from the likes of race goers, from the likes of, of people that bet on the sport, from people who watch watch racing at home on television, from the people who invest in the sport, the biggest investors of all, um, the racehorse owners. It's insight and understanding the, the, the demands of that customer group that should answer the question of what the sport should look like in the future. We should be driven by what our customers are telling us, not by what Richard Wayman thinks or or indeed any other single individual. You know, for any industry or for any sport to thrive, we need to be popular. We want people, whether they're existing fans of the sports or people that aren't currently engaged, to start watching racing, to start following the sport that we all love. And I think that has to be at the heart of this vision for our future how do we shape ourselves to appeal to to these audiences because that's the answer once we once we've agreed once we've agreed that and i think the other sort of issues around volume shape of the fitch list where prize money goes they flow from that from that position well listening to that was the racing post's senior writer lee moss's head the the fixture list publication normally fans a few flames. Lee, what did you make of Rich, Richard Wayman's uh, comments there? Uh, I thought they were really interesting, Nick. I think particularly in the in the second half of the interview, I thought Richard's um, passion and strong inner feelings were coming through, and that can be difficult because, as you say, he is racing senior civil servant in many ways, and civil servants aren't necessarily supposed to take positions. Um, but Richard clearly does have strong views, and I thought you were very good at bringing them out there in terms of Richard conceding, pointing out that he would like to see a pruned fixture list, but equally making the point that that's only part of it, and the wider question is how do we want the sport to look? And in some ways, we should know that already. You know, we, should, we shouldn't be waiting three and a half weeks now to have strategy discussions 
to determine what British racing strategy should look like. We should already have a strategy. So that in itself, that is regrettable. But hopefully at the end of those discussions, and hopefully it won't take too long, we will at least have some answers. The difficulty is going to be that I suspect, and I don't it takes a rocket scientist to work this one out, that the the race courses vision for what that, that sport should look like, well certainly some of the race courses will be very different to what some of the participants believe the sport should look like. And perhaps the only solution, therefore, is to have a stronger BHA to be able to do, as Bill Farnsworth said, as you referenced, and actually to make decisions and uh, and take a position and be able to actually implement what it wants to do. When he talks, Richard Wayman, of a multi-party coalition, he's not wrong. Indeed, that might be almost too simplistic. Nick, what happened earlier this year when Judy Harrington had an exec meeting failed to uh, forward the BHA's own plan for a reduction of 250 or 300 races, depending on which report you read, in the 2023 fixture list. I referenced that in the past as a Jeffrey Howe moment, where the BHA was voting against the BHA's own policy. And in some ways, that was, as you say, reflective of the wider sport. You have the situation whereby the Jockey Club, as you say, was, was supportive of that reduction, other races courses including the arena racing company were not you have a situation now where bill farnsworth is presenting a very different case to that of the wider rca view i think you you can't uh you can't avoid the fact that at the moment you have the extremely strange position whereby the racehorse owners association has a drastically different view on this and many associated topics to the the National Trainers Federation. Owners pay trainers, trainers depend on owners. You would imagine that on the big political issues, they might be broadly in line with each other. That is not the case. Anyone who heard Rafe Beckett speaking so passionately on the pod yesterday, and also in relation to his lack of enthusiasm and optimism for what these strategy talks will will deliver, would would not imagine that the ROA is in the, is in the same boat when you when you read what um, Charlie Liverton, the chief executive of the ROA, was saying yesterday in an email to ROA members. He said, "I firmly believe we're finally about to turn a corner. We now have the right people and requisite ambition to drive much needed change to address these issues and devise a strategy to shape a healthier future." For the sport, change and progress will be incremental, but rest assured, things will start heading in the right direction. Well, I don't think Rafe Beckett would have been saying rest assured, things will start heading in the right direction yesterday. Even within the groups, they have very different positions of what they think the sport should look like and how we should get there at the moment. And that is going to make these strategy talks, when they eventually begin, a, a, a really, really difficult process to uh, deliver anything positive. One man who's been known to have an opinion or two on the structure and funding of the sport is trainer Mark Johnston. Uh, his day job, he's pretty damn good too. Yesterday, uh, he reached a total either all on his own or latterly in the company of his son, Charlie, the co-licensee, uh, the milestone of 5,000 career winners, Lee. Um, how significant a moment is that? Well, if you read what Mark was saying in his quotes in the post today, you, you'd say it's probably not that significant um, because he points out that actually when he when he broke the record for a record number of winners for a trainer, that actually was breaking new ground. What he's doing now is simply 
uh, adding to his total. I suppose we should say that if you're being completely pedantic, you'd say that Mark's total actually stopped at the point where he joined forces with Charlie Johnston because they're now a different training unit. If you look on the Racing Post database, uh, you won't find, if you look at Charlie and Mark Johnston, those one is pre, uh, prior to their, their coming together. But I think that would be being very pedantic. What is clear is that Mark Johnston continues to be a winner machine um, we know that that he is a man like Rafe Beckett of extremely strong views. There are many occasions where I differ um, with with his views, where I think he's completely wrong on on a number of things, and there, there are times I also don't necessarily welcome the way in which he presents his arguments. But he does so with a real passion, and there is no doubt that he has been extraordinarily successful as a racehorse trainer, doing it from a, a standing start, and you have to applaud yet again another remarkable achievement. Well, if the Americans are taking centre stage globally and Torquato Tasso is the leading attraction in Germany this weekend, then you could argue that one of the most high-profile horses running in the UK is Hu Yamal, the derby runner-up now trained by George Bowie, ran such a good race at Glorious Goodwood on his debut for the yard. He ought to win the, the Group 3 on Saturday, perhaps as a stepping stone to the St. Ledger or something else. George Bowie's with me now. George, how's he got on since Glorious Goodwood? Yeah, he's been good, Nick. Um, very pleased with him. He's he's been a very straightforward horse since we got him, and um, he came in came in great shape. And he hasn't hasn't had to do a huge amount really. He's he's been ticking over. His work's been his work's been good, and um, yeah, it looks like being a small field on Saturday. I think. Yeah, small field on Saturday. He's nods on favourite at the moment. Do you think that in any way could inconvenience him? The possibility of it being a bit of a mess. Uh, I had a long chat to Gay Waterhouse last night and my one hope was that my fellow owner, Nick Bradley, was going to run Al Kareem and he's now not chopped up. So um, he's a horse who likes to get a lead, I think. And um, yeah, it could turn into a bit of a strange race. I think the the Haggis horse looks like it might turn up. And yeah, he's a horse who uh, definitely looked to be better in the Derby and then at Goodwood when he was, you know, when he had a good pace to run at. So that could change the complexion of the race for sure but it'll tell you something a little bit more about his about his stamina for sure going to, to 14 furlongs the the distance of the St. Ledger's St. Ledger's 14 and a half furlongs he's now 10 to 1 for the ledger the race is starting to thin out quite significantly uh, how do you feel about him as a as a potential winner of that race he's yeah, he's obviously got a he's got to stay the trip which is the main thing and, and I think the one thing that he's starting to do now is he's starting to relax and you know he's very much a horse who we're preparing for gay and adrian to to try and run two miles on his first start out there so everything that we've been trying to do is is to slow him down as it were i know it sounds a bit mad to go and try and win a melbourne cup but he was a free-going horse and um yeah look he's his preparation has been good and the race is i think as gay said last night it's coming together rather than falling apart um, but yeah, he's he's creeping up the betting, and um, I couldn't be happy with him really. How does it feel for you to to train for and with Gay Waterhouse? Yeah, it's great. It's um, I, I never really thought it would happen. Gay was a, has been a great mentor to me, and, and worked for her before I went to Hugo's. And um, yeah, to have a horse of, of his caliber, you know, she they obviously buy horses to to go down there, and, and they do stay with their trainers and. 
you know, but he's he's by some way the highest rated horse in my yard. You know, he's he's three pounds higher than Cachet, who who's won a classic. So um, no, look, it's a it's a huge honour, and and he's um, hopefully going to do well for us before he goes down there. You put a tongue tie on him first run for you. Why did you do that? Um, I think it's a bit less frowned upon down in Australia, and Gay was with me for a week, and you know it was her decision. She wanted to put one on, and you know, I don't think it's anything to, to his detriment. He, um, you know, they put a set of blinkers on without without batting an eyelid. They put a tongue tie on. Lots of them wear, wear different headgear the whole time, and um, it'd be no surprise to see him have his his headgear upgraded first up in the Melbourne Cup. We'd be surprised. We haven't seen Cache since Royal Ascot, George. Uh, she got the entry in the Kingdom of Bahrain Sun Chariot Stakes still at the beginning of October. Is she on target for that? Yeah, it's a it's a conversation that we're going to have to have pretty soon, and um, we'll see. Look, she's she's a filly who I, I think wants fast ground, um, and it, you know it's yeah. Look, it's it's a conversation that we're going to have to have. The Breeders' Cup has always been the plan, and, and you know it, we're trying to find a stepping stone to get there. So um, all options open at the moment, and we'll be. Um, I look, it's a nice conversation to be having to have. And presumably Breeders' Cup, you're going to have to go against males in the in the mile, yeah? It looks that way, yeah. Um, stepping up to a mile and three eights probably isn't really probably isn't really on the cards. I'd almost rather, you know, if, if we see her next year, she she could possibly be coming back in trip. George Bowie, there, trainer of Who You Mile, and with an update on the 1,000 Guineas winner Cache as well. It'd be quite something if the new market trainer could win two of the five domestic classics this season. Now Lee Mott has head. Race at Royal Ascot still unresolved. The Riddler was first past the post in the Norfolk Stakes. There was an objection to his victory, chiefly led by the owner of two of the horses who finished in behind him, Ammo Racing's Keir Jarobchin. You remember Paul Hannigan allowed his horse to drift wildly across the track. He got a 10-day ban under the careless riding rule. The only way that the Riddler could be demoted on appeal is if Hannigan's offence is upgraded to dangerous riding, very rare and very unlikely indeed, and or the stewards at the appeal board determine that the horses in behind, uh, on whose behalf the appeal is being lodged, could conceivably have finished in front of the Riddler had that interference not taken place. Again, extremely unlikely. It could yet, however, be a watershed moment in determining what constitutes dangerous riding. Lee, your colleague Chris Cook from the Racing Post has been following this closely. He has, and I think anyone who reads Chris's piece in the Post today uh, will pick up on, on his inner frustration. A bit like racing strategy, the result of the Norfolk Stakes is taking an awfully long time to manifest itself, the final result anyway. Um, Chris makes the point that yesterday we had a six-hour hearing into uh, into the, the appeal lodged by Amo Racing's Kijarabchin, um, and we still don't have an outcome. The, the panel that heard evidence from both sides uh, wants to give more time before it get, makes a decision. Uh, it will make its decision, make it announce that decision when it comes through with the final, final findings. Um, what we had yesterday, according to Chris, was a... A series at times of, of discussions about elements that one would be surprised that there was discussion on, including uh, in the first hour, how to pronounce Keir Trabchin's surname, um, which no doubt um, brought some amusement uh, in the room that this actually was a, a topic of discussion. When they got to the meat of it, you had an interesting situation by Rory McNeese, 
who we know best as a solicitor for representing jockeys and extremely ably too, was on this occasion representing Drabchen and engaged in debate and argument with Paul Hannigan, the winning jockey in the North League Stakes, about the, the quality of his ride. McNee said, this isn't a case of a rider doing something but nothing. This is a case of a rider doing absolutely nothing to prevent his horse going left across others. Paul Hannigan disagreed, the BHA, uh, disagreed as well. We're in a situation where we still don't necessarily know what the result of that Norfolk Stakes is, and it likely we, we won't know for a couple of weeks or so yet. Well, you'd be well forgiven for having long either forgotten about or chosen to forgot about the ongoing inquest, saga, call it what you will, into the result of the 2021, I think I've got the year right, Kentucky Derby. Medina Spirit was first past the post. He was disqualified for failing a post-race test. Mandaloon eventually was awarded the race after many, many months of legal toing and froing, both from a, a state legislative point of view and a Kentucky Horse Racing Commission point of view. But we're back. We're back for round, I don't know, Pat Cummings, director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Is it round two, three, four, five? And and what's going to happen? Baffert's in Kentucky at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, it's the next round, uh, Nick, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, whatever alphanumeric uh, string one would want to use. It's the next one. And uh, if it seems to strike some people kind of as out of the norm and kind of out of nowhere, uh, it is a little different this time. It is essentially an administrative hearing uh, where it's being led by a an attorney uh, who essentially presides over this. And, and the assignment, uh, according to Ron Flatter of Horse Racing Nation, who's pretty much led the American reporting on this, is that, that this attorney is um, to make a ruling. Uh, it's totally non-binding, um, but it would be a ruling that uh, will lead to a recommendation back to the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission, right, um, which has essentially rejected every major overture from the uh, Medina Spirit camp to do anything um, that would pro- provide some sort of relief to them. So what they are seeking is both uh, an expunging of the record of Bob Baffert's 90-day suspension, which he has already served, and uh, furthermore, and, and, and obviously more dramatically, to give Medina Spirit back the 2021 Kentucky Derby. So, it, 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 yeah, that's where we are. So is there any possibility of either of these things happening, in your opinion, and based on what you've read? The expunging of the record uh, is almost completely inconsequential. Uh, it's happened, it's over, move on. But the race, you know, it's, I think it's become clear that um, there is still some legal there is spending going on, right? I think that's what we're really witnessing here is that uh, the question becomes, why is this still happening? Because someone is paying for it to happen. And uh, I I think there's been generally no secret that the late Medina Spirits owner, Amr Zidane, has indicated that that he will offer um, his full backing to the pursuit of this process. Absolutely. On on this podcast and, and, and many times over. In person, uh, when you met with him in Saudi, um, all, all of those things. So, I, I think it's it's that that's really what we're witnessing here. And I think it remains incredibly unlikely uh, that there would be any such thing that that would reverse this back into their favor. I think what is clear, however, is that we are getting more and more 
on the record statements as a result of these uh, proceedings. And one I think that's just worth kind of, uh, you know, hearing from that was captured, like I said, by Ron Flatter of Horse Racing Nation is a back and forth, uh, what what Flatter had called more or less the, the flashpoint from Tuesday of this week's proceedings, in which the question uh, to Chief Steward Barbara Borden was more or less, was there any high-fiving amongst the inner circle of the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission that, that Medina Spirit tested positive? And Borden, who is who has been you know long in the stand here in Kentucky, uh, across the state's uh, racetracks, thoroughbred racetracks, said no. And and mostly the reason why there was no high fiving is because we knew we'd end up in this very situation where we are now. Uh, this very unenjoyable um, time spend, not to mention resource spend, to to get us to where we are today. So. Basically, there's there's seemingly a lot of news that's coming out of it, and a lot of discussion, and a lot of you know interesting quotes. But is this going to change anything? I think highly doubtful. In terms of uh, Baffert's own relationship with Churchill Downs, he he is. Am I right in thinking he's he's still off off games there for another what eighteen months? Yes, through the end of 2023, uh, yeah. that, that is where things stand, and, and there's been no change to that as of as of yet. And can this can these proceedings affect that at all? So, can these no. proceedings affect whether he could have runners in next year's Kentucky Derby, for example? Cannot. Uh, that is still Churchill's own uh, rule. That uh, you know, speaking about things that one has lost track of, where do things stand with that particular lawsuit? Uh, that that still seems to be in the works. So he's he's effectively, or he and Zidane and whoever is is fighting with Bob Baffert is fighting a, a battle on two different fronts. It is as uphill as it, as I think it could possibly be, Nick. Right. Let's talk about Churchill Downs itself because there was some quite important news this week that the newly laid turf course would be uh, set to repose for a little while. Pat, uh, why? Yeah, it's, it's been an on-again, off-again uh, grass course at Churchill Downs. And I think this is perhaps of note, too, in the coming years, is there is a, an expectation that once Churchill uh, redoes their paddock uh, and some other renovation work, that it would once again be up for uh, hosting the Breeders' Cup, but not anytime soon. And they have not uh, been able to run on the turf course with the exception of two grade one races, the the Beverly D and Arlington Million, which were run a few weeks ago on a course that could best be defined as dirt with some grass on it. Um, they, they have announced that they will not run at all during their relatively short September meeting, which takes up the back half of, of September in the hopes that they can run on it again in their more slightly more prestigious uh, November meet, which normally does have several uh, graded races on it. Um, but but this has been a, a real mess, Nick, uh, in in terms of their their planning and execution, and you know fault wh- wh- wherever it may be. Um, at the end of the day, the, either the grass wasn't growing correctly or appropriately, and it led to a, a really inconsistent course. There were some injuries uh, that were suffered over it, and, and so that allowed Churchill to really require them to pull the plug on turf racing uh, midway through their spring meet. Um, the the trickle on effect of this has not just been that there's been there won't be turf racing at, at Churchill Downs, 
Um, but really that a lot of, of, of horse players and owners and trainers, I think, have looked at the results of the races that did take place on those turf courses. And really, I think it's allowed a lot of people to just throw them out. It was clearly an odd course. Um, and, and it, and it may have yielded some results where, where horses have, have come back out of races there and, and run far better than they were running on the Churchill, on the Churchill grass. So it's a bit of a mess. Um, I think the instinct here is that even if they do run some races on it in November, they've they've just got to do a lot of work to get the grass back. Um, this is not like an, an English course uh, or any of the European courses. This is this is a totally manufactured and, and manicured uh, course, um, like almost all of them are in America, bar one or two. Um, and it's it's a real mess they have on their hands. And just finally, we spoke yesterday with Matt Bonier quite extensively about the Travers Stakes. Who's going to win it? And is it going to have a big impact on the Breeders' Cup Classic? It almost always does. It's a very fun uh, renewal because we get Kentucky Derby winner Rich Strike. We get Preakness winner Early Voting. We get Zandon, who uh, was was close um, in both. Um, But I actually am am quite a a fan of the uh, kind of up-and-coming son of Arrogate Artorias, who's only had three starts. Uh, he's out of a ghost zapper mare. And, you know, by Arrowgate, uh, I think the memory all turns back to a couple of years ago when Arrowgate uh, just destroyed his rivals in a uh, record-setting performance in this very race. He only has three races under his belt, very similarly prepared uh, to to how Arrowgate was uh, prepared. But, but this time, Artorias, trained by Chad Brown, uh, comes into it in, in what will be his first try in graded stakes company. He was a winner of the Curlin, a listed race for three-year-olds who had not won a stakes race um, in that uh, in, in the year uh, to date. He won that by four and three-quarter lengths very easily, very impressively, owned by Judmont. Um, I'm, I'm going to lean to Artorias to maybe be the progressive sort facing up against uh, some of his uh, – some of his rivals who were much more familiar to us in the early part of the year. Pat Cummings, their director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation on Baffert, Churchill Downs, and the Travers that comes up Saratoga this Saturday afternoon, evening if you're in the UK, of course. Lee Mottishead is still with me at the end of a very busy show. And uh, news just come in, Lee. Uh, Charlie Fellows, who's the chairman of the Henry Cecil Open Weekend in Newmarket, he's just tweeted, he says, very grateful to both William Haggis and Shadwell for cantering Baid on Warren Hill as part of the Henry Cecil weekend, 8 o'clock, Sunday the 18th of September, before all the yards open their doors. Tickets available online now. That will be a big draw. It will, and um, I think that's a a great move by William Haggis and by Shadwell. It it completely understands the fact that Bayeed is the highest profile horse in the sport at the moment, as well as being the best horse in the sport. It will be a draw and we're not going to get many more chances to see Bayid in action, one or two at the most. This isn't going to be a race, but the chance to see such an exceptional athlete at close quarters and uh, moving on the Gallup to Newmarket is a really positive development indeed. Which exceptional athlete have you uh, plucked out for me today? Of course, we've got leg three, week three. It's actually week four, but leg three uh, of the racing league today. Are you going there or not? I'm not. It's a long way, Newcastle. Um, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to that meeting um, again. Just going back to discussions we've had before about um, the future list and race program. Um, 
you have a situation there where a number of the races haven't attracted their full fields of 14 runners, despite the the really the the, the, the very significant amount of prize money that is made available at Newcastle tonight. So that again underlines the issues that we've got at the moment. I'm actually going probably actually the same sort of distance to Carlisle, the 420, the racing TV nursery handicap. Uh, Mott Walford runs a gelding called Spiora Dolta. Uh, who I thought ran an eye-catching race at air last time has been generally progressive, but we talk about horses who we expect to improve when they go into handicap company. I think this is very much such a horse, and I'm going to go for Spioridolta, probably pronounced wrong, in the 420 at Carlisle. Lee, thanks so much. Thank you very much for, for listening. That was Thursday, August the 25th. Don't forget, if you do enjoy this podcast, please do tell your friends and spread the word. And if you're kind enough, leave us a rating and a review on your favourite podcast platform. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and thoroughbred racing commentary. Mm-hmm.